global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. This is a problem that's going to, you know, exist long after we both retire, Alison. It's not as simple as buying green stocks or divesting exposure to carbon. Coal-fired uh, power is ultimately stranded, but the scale issue remains. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. The focus on investing through an ESG lens has intensified and the way in which investors are incorporating ESG into investment processes varies widely. In this episode of the Good Value podcast, we're going to explain why ESG isn't as simple as just buying stocks with so-called green credentials. We're going to focus on some of our best ESG investing ideas, including one underappreciated sector that has an important role in the decarbonisation cycle. And we're going to look at how Antipodes considers ESG a potential source of differentiated alpha for all investment ideas. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. It's Alison Savas, Client Portfolio Manager. And joining me from our London office is Antipodes Investment Analyst Owen Scarrett. Owen, first, can you give our listeners a brief introduction to your role at Antipodes? Absolutely. So I'm sat here in uh, very rainy London, if that makes our Sydney-based listeners feel any better. So I, I wear two, two hats here at Antipodes as a sector analyst looking at the industrial and commodity sector and also as an ESG analyst. Uh, and in that role, I, I have broad oversight of the ESG strategy being undertaken by each member of the team here at Antipodes. I find the roles complement each other very well, given you know there's a huge amount of focus on extractive industries for effectively all ESG issues. Prior to joining Antipodes, I spent the last decade as an investor in the industrials and commodity sectors, and once upon a time, I even developed a renewable energy startup. Oh, and let's get into the first point I wanted to touch on. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say the market can take a pretty backward-looking approach when it comes to ESG. There seems to be a focus on companies that have been the worst carbon emitters or companies that have a record of poor corporate citizenship. And yes, this is important, but good ESG investing must be forward-looking. Do you agree that there can be an over-reliance in our industry on ESG scores and one-dimensional screening? Yes, I think that's correct. ESG scores are helpful in that they highlight where the analysts should focus their time, but they're very typically backwards looking. As you say, our view is that ESG scores need to supplement the qualitative understanding of change that may be afoot in the company. Our approach is to look for acceptable standards and a pathway to continued sustainable improvement where that improvement can be measured and monitored. You know, Alison, it's easy to screen out obvious offenders. And we also screen out companies that manufacture or distribute goods or services that are harmful to health and well-being, like tobacco, for instance. But this alone is a one-dimensional approach, and we need to go further than this. Take, for instance, power utility companies. Many power utilities score very poorly on a backwards-looking basis because of carbon intensity. But these companies shouldn't be automatically screened out if they're investing in renewable capacity because they're essential to the long-run solution to decarbonize economies. High carbon emitters are some of the most important pivot points to decarbonization. So we focus on positive change here at Antipodes, companies where we can see incremental and positive change ahead and where this change can generate alpha. So not just buying the stocks with the strongest green credentials today. No, I think it's, it's much more nuanced than that. 
Just like the example of power utilities, there can be significant value owning companies that are misunderstood from an ESG perspective. They could be operating in parts of the market that investors may not be prepared to buy or where investors may struggle to understand the opportunity because they're not willing to consider the change that can happen over a very long time horizon. We like turnaround cases in carbon emitting sectors, for example. We like seeing how supply and demand dynamics change when carbon limitations are initiated. We like corporate governance improvement candidates. And this is where we, we see ESG can be a source of alpha. And similarly, you know, investors need to be mindful of overpaying for ESG credentials. We actively avoid areas of the market where valuations are extreme because of perceived ESG factors. You only have to look, for example, at Orsted, a great company, world leader in offshore wind that grew overvalued as investors extrapolated supernormal returns and then subsequent with disappointing operational metrics saw the stock fall dramatically. Decarbonisation dominates the ESG conversation. And Owen, you've highlighted that investors, you know, they need to be selective. It's not as simple as buying green stocks or divesting exposure to carbon. So what are the key issues the team considers when it comes to decarbonisation? You know, I always tell people when we discuss it that I think the greatest issue has to be considered scale. Um, we're effectively retrofitting a global energy system that's designed to run on fossil fuels. And um, realistically, we haven't had such a shift since the Industrial Revolution. You know, fossil fuels still account for 80% of primary energy use globally. So it's, it's worth just noting it's a, it's a huge task to replace fossil fuels. At the same time as changing the piping of our energy system as we know it, we need to maintain living standards and allow developing countries to increase their energy consumption as their wealth increases. So, you know, the, the scale required to transition to a decarbonized economy is huge. It's, you know, a multi-trillion dollar and multi-decade investment process. Yet, you know, there are market participants trying to fit decarbonization into a typical one to three year time horizon. This is a problem that's going to, you know, exist long after we both retire, Alison. And investors want to, on top of this, investors want to drop carbon exposed stocks like hot potatoes today because it's becoming problematic for many funds to own high carbon emitters. But diverse, divesting carbon exposed stocks is not the answer. Firstly, we need to manage this transition period towards decarbonization. And secondly, we don't want to dis these companies to disappear into the private sector with no oversight whatsoever. Our view is that we need a seat at the table to be part of the transition and to affect positive change. And that's why we see real value in credible transition stories. Oh, and let's delve further into the energy sector. Now, it's going to take some time to completely unshackle ourselves from fossil fuels and achieve full reliance on renewable energy. So how do you view this transition phase? Absolutely, Alison. So our starting position is coal-fired uh, power is ultimately stranded. Um, I don't think that's a controversial view, and that's because it can be economically replaced by alternative sources. We think that renewables will expand globally uh, and very quickly, but the scale issue remains, uh, along with the reliability issue of um, renewables. So we believe that this will lead to an expansion actually in global gas consumption in the last decade, and that gas will actually form a transition fuel through decarbonization, through the decarbonization period. Our view is that natural gas players are materially undervalued when considered as a sort of transitory tool for decarbonization. Natural gas produces less than half the emissions of coal per unit of electricity. Now, gas has been labeled as a transition fuel in the past, but that sort of fell away, fell, fell away from the market's view as many believe that renewables would fully replace coal much more quickly. 
But today's grids are growing increasingly unstable due to high penetration of renewables. And so they're burning more gas. So, so we've got two very powerful drivers there. The first is the replacement of coal. And the second is this balancing act within power grids. This is a potent combination and significantly reduces carbon emissions. What opportunities do you see to take advantage of greater global gas demand? So firstly, we, we see that the opportunity for gas demand to increase is a really a global phenomenon. Uh, and within that, we actually see that the US is going to grow in a much, into a much more important exporter. So if, if you take what's happened in the US, the, the broad shift in power generation towards gas and renewables and away from coal has probably reduced carbon emissions by about a quarter since 2007. So we own Exxon in the portfolio, which is a leading natural gas producer, and it's shifting towards more gas. And we have exposure to a variety of other US gas players. We see those powerful demand drivers remaining and strengthening globally. And the increase in LNG exports will bring much higher global pricing to the US players, because effectively the US gas market will, be, will grow increasingly globalized. US gas prices are currently about $10 per unit cheaper than global gas prices. And this will attract a lot of exports out of the US. This could have a profound impact on US gas players, which have effectively been landlocked for the past decade. Okay, let's take a closer look at Exxon. I'm sure listeners will be surprised to hear us discussing the largest publicly listed oil producer in an ESG podcast. Take us through how Exxon has a place in an ESG aware portfolio. Well, as a starting point, I think it's, it's because Exxon has a place to play in the energy transition. Firstly, the pressure on management has never been stronger, which was shown in the recent proxy battle and the votes naming new directors to the board, toppling the management's own recommendations. So, so changes afoot with a number of new credible decarbonization exports sat on the board. Secondly, Exxon's renowned for its engineering prowess, and it has vast expertise in the entire value chain of carbon products. Now, this matters because there are areas which are incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to economically decarbonize. For those sectors, carbon is going to remain in use for a long time. And the likely answer sits with carbon capture and storage. That is, to utilize fossil fuels as you would in existing processes, but then to capture and store the resulting carbon and not let it into the atmosphere. Exxon's engineering skills include the most experience with carbon capture and storage globally. And we think that Exxon will likely monetize the value they're able to add as we move towards an increasingly decarbonized world. So then addressing Exxon's traditional oil and gas business, it'll be run off in time. But as we've discussed, the energy transition takes time. So over this time period, Exxon is going to use the cash flow from its traditional business to invest in processes to reduce the amount of carbon produced in the production of oil, as well as investing in all these future ideas. So in conclusion to the Exxon idea, the opportunity for incumbents shouldn't be understated. This is turning into a multi-decade opportunity for Exxon, which has expertise in the area. So Exxon is an example of a company in a carbon intensive industry that's future-proofing its business, but is mispriced relative to its utility. Now, this is going to be missed by many investors applying a blunt ESG filter. Now, governance and societal issues are a less discussed area of ESG, but equally important to long-term investors, as governance affects every company, regardless of the sector or the type of business. What is Antibody's approach? Yes, that's right. Management and societal impacts can make or break a company, and 
you know that history is littered with examples of companies with poor corporate governance that have destroyed a lot of shareholder value. But similarly, there are great companies with strong competitive positions in need of governance improvements. And we see a lot of value in these opportunities. Markets are notoriously bad at pricing governance-led change. And when that change happens, you often see multiple expansion coupled with stronger earnings. Just look at Exxon. The fact that this company had bowed to shareholder pressure shows that no company is above its shareholders' wishes. We very much supported the dissenters in this case and voted against management in support of what we see as positive change. At Antipodes, our view is that governance can be improved through shareholder pressure and voting matters to affect this change. Can you take us through some examples where we've observed changes in management and societal issues or the potential for change and it's been a key opportunity in the investment thesis? Sure, I think Volkswagen is a great example. The diesel emission scandal where VW was found to have been using software to cheat emissions tests was a corporate governance disaster. No two ways about it. Uh, the stock materially underperformed as the company incurred huge fines and was forced to recall and replace affected vehicles. But it, you know, it brought a tornado into the boardroom. It led to a major strategic pivot where the company doubled down on the shift to lower emitting vehicles and to an EV strategy. Fast forward to today, and VW will sell all, almost as many EVs as Tesla this year. This highlights the importance of looking for positive change rather than backwards looking metrics. Because post Dieselgate, all governance metrics look terrible. A lot of investors wouldn't dream of investing in, in VW. But there's a boardroom culture and strategic change ongoing in the aftermath, which is the reason why VW is now leading the charge in reducing emissions of its fleet compared to the other traditional automakers. And what about Korean telco operator KT Corp, which was a a long-term holding in the portfolio? This company was known as a governance improvement story, but the market wasn't prepared to factor in any value for the potential of better capital management outcomes. Yeah, Korean companies are believed to prioritise the interests of founding family or even government as opposed to shareholders. We often see Korean companies with great assets, but lacking in either shareholder perception or all too often uh, having a completely incoherent capital allocation plan. So you look at KT Core, it's a, a company with great incumbent market position and strong returns, but it lacked capital allocation. And it was a perennial underperformer up until this year. Our engagement with the company, along with other investors, led to greater and increased distributions. The stock began to outperform this year, prompted by improved management, the promise of increasing shareholder returns, and finally an end to mismanaged capital allocation that plagued the company for the last 20 years. We actually recently exited the position because it reached our target valuation and because we think the market is now factoring in the best case scenario of further distributions. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned the focus on positive change in the team's ESG process. Now that example of KT Corp does show the importance of engagement and the opportunity it creates. And I guess this underscores the benefits of acting as constructivists and not activists. Yeah, yes, that's right. We use engagement to affect positive change if a company's current performance isn't reflective of what we think its long-term potential is, or if its current strategy doesn't encompass appropriate risk management. And we actively engage with both candidate and investee companies in a constructive way. Ultimately, if this engagement proof proves futile, we'll avoid the company or potentially divest our holding. Engaging with management teams where we think 
improvements can be made is fairly standard practice. But engagement should go further than this. We also use engagement to build confidence around our investment ideas. And of course, uh, aluminium is a great example of this where engagement was used to build conviction. Yeah, aluminium is a carbon intensive sector as the bulk of aluminium is produced using electricity from coal. Uh, So it's got the stigma of a very dirty sector. And investor sentiment was characterized by a decade of China-led overcapacity, which was basically entirely based on coal. Yet within the industry, the renewable-based producers like Norsk Hydro. Norsk produces aluminium using mostly hydro-based power and has a CO2 footprint about 80% lower than the highest emitters. When we started investing in Norsk in 2019, it was valued at a significant discount to the replacement cost of what we saw as very unique assets. And then on the demand side, we see EVs, beverage packaging emerging as key incremental demand drivers. But aluminium produced using a massive carbon footprint was effectively the same price as aluminium with a low carbon footprint, which didn't make any logical sense to us. So our thesis was that the market could bifurcate, that low carbon aluminium could see a structural inflection in demand. It could even develop a potentially price premium compared to high carbon emitters. So we used engagement to test this thesis. We spoke to two major holdings, which were VW and Coca-Cola which are, of course, both very significant aluminium consumers. And interestingly, the engagement showed both had a very positive reception for green aluminium and you know, indicated that they would potentially pay a higher price for it in the future. So aluminium consumers are growing increasingly aware of corporate level mandates to drive change in their supply chains. Since Norsk entered the portfolio, a premium for low carbon aluminium has continued to increase. And interestingly, the total aluminium price has rallied to 2008 financial crisis highs, post-financial crisis highs, sorry, on concerns about future demand limitations resulting from carbon concerns. So actually, we, we still hold Norsk in the portfolio today. So Owen, to, to wrap up, ESG was a key acronym of 2020, and it has become a bit of a buzzword. As investors, why do we need to ensure ESG is an essential part of the investment process? Yeah, yeah I guess you could say, why do we bother? Well, You know, along with supporting stronger outcomes for the community and broader society, our view is that the private sector has a strong role to play in improving outcomes for effectively all parties. And at its core, we consider ESG a potential source of differentiated alpha for our investment ideas. Um, The examples that we've discussed today highlight the importance of ESG analysis being fully integrated into the investment process and not some sort of siloed standalone consideration. In Antipodes, It's each analyst's responsibility to incorporate their assessment of ESG risks and opportunities similarly into each investment case. And this is done in the same framework that the analyst would consider all investment risks and opportunities. To do this effectively, we think that ESG analysis has to be undertaken by the analyst closest to the stock, not by some siloed ESG team. And this is because the in-depth nature of ESG issues is company and sector specific. And therefore, you need strong sector knowledge in order to navigate these problems. Thanks for your time today, Owen. That brings us to the end of another episode. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on, and we'll be back again in a few weeks. In the meantime, keep up to date with our thinking at antipodespartners.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.